What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Inking Out Loud for episode 43. Last week, we left off with chapter 15 of Lord of Chaos, the sixth book in Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, and today we're picking up for part two, which will be chapter 16 through 42, The Black Tower. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And Starship Captain Jared Livingston. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> and before we get started, we also need to welcome our newest patron at the Radiant Tier, Joseph McFarland. Joseph, thank you very much, my man. Yeah, thanks for and, supporting us. Uh, he will also be glad to know that we've added his recommendation to our reading list. So now I'm passing this off to Drew, who's going to summarize what we've just read. Drew, bring it on. Yeah, so we uh, we had a lot of jumping around in this section. Uh, we kicked things off with Rand. Uh, basically, Rand, for this whole part, is going back and forth between Camelin and Kyrian. He meets both the Towers Embassy and the Saladar Embassy. Uh, some Ogier show up, and Rand has his plan to uh, start locking down the Waygates. They go to Shadar Logoth. And he loses Leah, the Maiden of the Spear there. Um, yeah, he uh, he reunites with Min, and he gets a letter from Elaine. A very opaque letter from Elaine. And, uh, and then at the end of this section, Rand makes one of the uh, biggest pronouncements in the series. And he founds the Black Tower and the Ashaman. We have names for those now. We have names. We have titles. Yeah. We have ranks. And uh, meanwhile... Uh, Egwene continues her uh, training with the Wise Ones until she is summoned to Saladar, where she is raised to the Amarlin seat. And during that intervening time in Saladar, Nynaeve heals both gentling and stilling to various <laughs> you know, degrees of success. So, Thursday for Nynaeve. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we had some pretty fun things happening uh, in in this section. And I'm looking forward to discussing it. Yeah, we had a lot happen in this section. This was slightly longer than our usual, you know, tackle for the Wheel of Time for a single episode. Um, chapters, like I said earlier, 16 through 42. <clears throat> this is well over a third of the book, and there was a lot happening. But we decided we wanted to end it here so that we have all the more time to discuss everything that happens at the end of this book. But for now, I want to see if you guys have anything style-oriented that you want to discuss. I did not have anything written down. I I didn't have much. Uh, Jared? Nope. Okay. So the, the only thing I really had to write down, um, I, I just wanted to focus, like I did very recently, uh, about, you know, on Jordan's ability to use this kind of bizarre social landscape of the Aiel and continue hmm. giving us things to laugh at. And even at this point now, things to cringe at once you start to get a feel for them. And I'm referring right now, of course, to the Maidens of the Freaking Sword... Yeah. And they have guy shine with weapons. It's so wrong. You know? Mm -hmm. I can like I can recall being vaguely amused and like at the discomfort that we see from the the Aiel and Kyrian when I was, you know, as a teenager reading this. But I don't remember ever before cringing myself almost to my knees like I did at work last week when that part came up in the audiobook. I was like, "Oh my god, it hurts so much." <laughs> it really did. Yeah, there's a there's a pretty um, pretty big impact from Aiel culture that we start seeing in this book, uh, influencing the Westlands and interacting, 
uh, between the Kyrianen and the Aiel, and obviously the uh, the Maidens of the Sword, so to speak, here are one of those. But another one that I, I really wanted to talk about is uh, Mangan. And yeah, yeah, I have part of that with Rands uh, as a character. Yeah, points about Mangan. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting to see how uh, Robert Jordan so naturally blends these cultures and and shows us the a proper amount of culture shock you know it, it makes these characters and these societies feel real that they don't just exist in bubbles even when the bubbles like come into contact it's it, there is an amalgamation and assimilation in in certain ways going on yeah and i just want to tip my hat to another point um just to to round off my uh, style discussion here jordan just deciding to be okay i'm out with it i'm having rand interview Ilaria sarand and learn that he is not in any way related to Elaine. I thought, nice one, Jordan. Real subtle on that one. Wink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, that rounds off my uh, style discussion. I can dive into characters now. I have so much to discuss about Rand this time around. I, I think Rand is a good place to start here. Um, uh, do you agree, Jared? Yep, let's do it. Okay. Wait, is there anywhere in particular you wanted to start? Well, because <laughs> let's start with Mangan. I mean, that's okay, a, I, I think a, a pretty key moment for Rand a, in his progression as a ruler. Um, it's this moment that shows us he is still retaining some humanity, but he is struggling mightily with the demands of rulership and the public perception of him. And he knows that if he doesn't go through, if he doesn't follow up on this law that he created just because he liked a guy, you know, it, and, yeah. and it's a sad moment, you know, <clears throat> that Rand has to sort of take this necessary step in his, in his progression as a ruler. Yeah. No, like hanging of Mangan. It was tough. It was brutal. It was necessary for Rand to learn. Um, I didn't, uh, sorry, I did get a thought this time though, and it might be worth a quick tangent. I wanted to ask both you and Jared, what do we think would have happened at this point specifically at this point in the series, if the murderer had been a maiden. Assuming, of course, that any maiden would be foolish enough to do it in the first place, that's on the side. But if this had been a maiden, how do you think this would have turned out? I think given his hang-up with women, with... I mean, you can see his hang-up with Lanfear herself in the last couple books. If he can't bring himself to harm her, what is he going to do with a maiden? Yeah. I think Rand would have tried very hard to find some way for the maiden to like disappear or something like that to get out of it but I also think the maiden would have acted like Mangan and acted according to Gieto and go to Rand and basically say like no I'm not escaping this I did what I did I must you know suffer the punishment do you think maybe he would have just let Sulin deal with it See, okay, yeah, so that's possibly. kind of where this, that's kind of where I'm going with this because if that had happened and it had been a maiden, the only way I could really see that um, realistically working out would be the wise ones in Kyrian discovering that he did this, realizing that he still has this weakness and he's not going to be able to follow through with his own law and taking care of the problem before he even arrives. Perhaps that could be, yeah. which would have really 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 pissed him off probably once he learned about that and might have driven another wedge between him and the wise ones but as we see that didn't happen it was mangan you know the hanging of mangan if you will and um yeah i wrote that one down i wasn't sure if i was gonna say it but you know the moment was ripe but yeah 
it was uh, it was tough. It was tough to read, but it was very, very you know important stepping stone in the journey to this or through this dark Rand character that we're seeing so far. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And of course, we we get a little bit of a flip side of that when Rand meets uh, meets up with Min again, and we see a little yeah. bit of Rand's sort of lighter side coming back out when Min shows up. Yeah, no, he does. Yeah, yeah, that happened right near the end of this particular part, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like Rand's sense of humor with uh, Sulin's punishment in Camelin having to be his maid. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's another thing I wanted to ask you guys specifically about Rand as a character and his relationship with Sulin at this point in the series. Do we think he's treating her unfairly? Like, or is he just, like, is she perhaps being sulky and therefore earning it? Or is it both? Is it neither? Uh, I'm, I'm a little on her side, honestly. I think she's no, being sulky and he's treating her accordingly. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly what it is. Sulin's acting like a, you know, kind of like a little baby about this whole thing. And is she, though? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we can see that she's willing to horrifically shame herself if it means summoning enough spears in time to protect Rand, like, in the count of 50. I yeah, but she's, I like, mean, turning like... herself into a martyr. And I think Rand sees that foolishness involved in it. So. You think she takes herself too seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I can see that. I can see that. Um, another thing about Rand I wanted to discuss. Oh, the uh, the scene in the, um, where he... Uh, it, it, it might I'm bringing it up now because it might m- not make my top three, but it's from Rand's point of view as he visits the school that he set up in Kyrian. Oh, um, and seeing yeah. these inventions that, that I mean I thought that was pretty neat as a reader with context for what these things might be, and also to read it from the point of view of a, of a character who has absolutely no idea what he's looking at. Right. You know this this whole scene had like this very kind of whimsical slice of life from the Dragon Reborn's perspective, you know, feel to it. I thought it was superb, all the way through. Yeah, I, I I love the idea of the academies, and uh, and it, it is, you're right, it's fun to kind of dig into how Rand is describing these things and put the pieces together to figure out what exactly, uh, in our modern sense of things, uh, these inventors are trying to come up with. So Yeah, yeah. And like the way he gave a hundred, I think it was a hundred crowns gold in prize money to Kin Tovir. You know? Yeah. And it was, a, it was at a moment where if I, I might be remembering incorrectly, but I think we were really feeling bad for the man at that point. I think it was maybe perhaps the way that Adrian Tarson was like treating him. But, yeah. you know, the important thing is Jordan still gives us reasons to like Rand to balance out the darkness that he still has yet to bring to that character. Right. Yeah. And of course we... And a, we meet Herod Sorry, Fell in this section, and we do. And he's uh, he's such an enigma, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Well, Rand, Rand finds him refreshing because he doesn't treat him like the Dragon Reborn at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the man Mervin, who's got that entire contraption of brass and steam and all these things that are whistling, and Rand has zero concept, <laughs> yeah. zero clue as, as to what the hell this thing could be, but apparently it's going to bring a new age when he finishes it. Dude's got burns all over his hands. Oh, I just I love the whole dramatic irony of this scene. Well, do we you know what we're looking at. Yeah, I was going to say, do you remember what that ended up turning into? I think it's in this... uh, Winter's Heart that we see it. Yeah, like the steam wagons, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was pretty cool, though. I thought it was awesome. Um, as far as Rand goes, uh, oh yeah, Dreaming Luz Theron's Dreams of the Age of Legends. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty surreal. Um, relationship with Sulin, let's see here. Ba-da-ba-ba. Um, 
Oh, and uh, hey, so we're starting to see a little bit of this mirroring between Demandred and Randall Thor that I hadn't really picked up on before. Now that we've got the context, we finished, you know, A Memory of Light. And spoilers, of course, for Memory of Light, kind of. But I just now picked up on this. We have two separate scenes ending after a meeting in Teleronriad, where once the parties vanish, a figure steps out mm-hmm. from behind a pillar and he reveals that he was listening. The first was Demandred in the Camelon Palace, yep. like in the World of Dreams. And then we had Rand do the exact same, learning about Salidar. I thought that right. was a really, really nice touch. And I had not picked that up at all like with that parallel between Demandred and Randall Thor until just now, like just literally today. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I, I hadn't really considered that side of it either. Um, but it makes sense, considering how much Demandred and Luce Theron are framed as like as really similar people and similar in capacity and skill, but Demandred is always like just slightly less effective, and we see that in those scenes where Rand gets exactly the information that he wants and needs, yep. whereas Demandred doesn't really get as much information from his spying as he <laughs> might have wanted. You yeah, know? and uh, we I love that little moment that Jordan inserted there. I I wrote down this is what I wrote. Down. I said, "Oh hey there, little red flag." Uh, Rand, <laughs> Ruark just told you there's fighting in Shara. You know, those yes. lands across the waste that you just casually ignore for the rest of the bloody series. Yeah, I hope this doesn't come back and bite you in the ass while you're fighting the last battle. You know? <laughs> and then I remembered, oh wait, it actually comes back to bite Egwene in the ass. So yeah, I'm okay with it. Yeah, it doesn't really have much of an impact on Rand. <laughs> Never does. Never does. Oh. So that's the end of my points about Randall Thor as a character so far. Well, I, I think we got to talk a little bit about Rand and the Aes Sedai here. Uh, okay. Because the two embassies treat him very differently. Mm. Uh, the Saldar embassy is much more uh, you know, brash and direct, and Rand kind of bounces off them harder because of that. Uh, yep. But, of course, the Tower embassy <laughs> is duplicitous, and their their whole demeanor toward Rand is, is a facade. It's a front. And... Uh, you know, it's it just helps to reinforce how Rand is going to act toward Aes Sedai going forward. Having these interactions where there is duplicity going on, and he's already lost Moiraine, and she, and she already told him, trust no Aes Sedai, you know, like, don't even trust, you know, tr- trust nobody, basically. And, yeah. and, um, and both the Saladar and the Tower embassies, in their own ways, are giving Rand reason to continue distrusting Aes Sedai. Yeah, they do. And that's very important going forward. Because, you know, he, like... Oh, my God. The, the way he likes to play... The, especially not just in the difference between how the Saladar Aes Sedai and the Tower Aes Sedai approach Rand, but the difference in how he kind of interacts in turn with them. Like, he tells Egwene... As he's meeting with the tower Aes Sedai, I'm going to be meek as a mouse, I think is how he put it. Um, yeah. Or, yeah, quote. You know, I thought, I mean, especially having that scene from Egwene's point of view, I thought was a really, really neat touch. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's that. I don't know, that was, that was my only real point that I wanted to bring up about Rand versus Aes Sedai, at least in this segment. Because <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna oh, discuss that more. <laughs> quite discuss a bit more <laughs> in the next episode for sure. Um, one thing I wanted to discuss about Rand and get your guys' input on is: Do you think that he regrets appointing Tame 
to the position that he has him in right now. No. Yeah, not right now. Um, but pretty soon, <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> it, it's I I think Rand, because uh, this goes hand in hand with how Rand is developing as a ruler. He's trying really hard right now to delegate. He's he's trying to keep himself sort of above water by putting many of these big responsibilities on other people. And he can't always... He doesn't always have enough people he trusts to put them all off on. So, like Taim, he has to sort of make a leap there. But so far, Rand hasn't had any reason yet to really uh, second-guess himself on that. I do think a little bit of a red flag should have popped up... Um, when Rand named Taim the first Ashaman and Taim was like sickened by it. Oh, see, I would have thought it actually happened before that when Taim killed the Gray Man before Rand could capture him. Um, I, I, he was I certainly think, angry about it. Yeah, I, I think there's a. That's also a little bit of a red flag, but that is something that, as we saw, like it could be explained away as like somebody being ardent in their protection of Rand. Well, the, the Gray Man was already wrapped up in flows of air. He was not a threat to anybody at that point. Uh, yeah, but Time can just be like, oh, I, I it was reflex, you know. like Yeah, he at least gives him something to say, right? Like, yeah. Like, you could, you know, he, yeah. I, see I think saying. a lot of clouding Rand's judgment with all of this is Luz Theron seeming to rage even more whenever Tame's around and trying to yes. grab the source. And so... I think Rand probably attributes a lot of his feelings towards Tame as a result of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, are we done with Randall Thor? Well, um, the other thing I wanted to bring up on that subject of like the delegation is how Rand's trust for Bashir seems to be growing. Oh, yeah. And, okay. uh, and this okay, is yeah. actually one of my favorite sort of minor scenes in this book. Uh, it's in the chapter Connecting Lines. It starts off with Rand on the hill watching the Shi'anar and Light Cavalry the, practice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, the Saldean. Or, yeah, Saldean, sorry, not Shi'anar. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, watching them practice and doing all these, like, acrobatics and, and formations and things, and you're like, what the heck is going on? And And it's such a... Like, you can tell it's important, but you don't know why it's important. That Rand is, like, scheduling time to go out there and review them. Yeah. And it's like, Rand doesn't bother reviewing his soldiers. Like, what? Yeah, and we, we saw Bashir actually remind him a few times, hey, mm-hmm. you were supposed to come out and do this, right? Are you still planning on doing this? And Rand keeps putting it off. I'll, I'll yep. do it. Yes, I will do it. That goes to show that he does take Bashir seriously. He keeps mm-hmm. he does He doesn't just dismiss it. He just reschedules it. And he does show up, as you say, in this scene to personally witness you know, the, the prowess of the Saldanian horse. And and even more so, uh, we don't get, like, a firm answer to it in this book, but as we'll see by the end of A Crown of Swords, these these are, like, specific formations and things that they're going to use in the invasion of Ilion. All of these, you know, ropes and markers and things they're riding down are the roads of Ilion, the streets of Ilion. And when really? They, yeah, so when... I didn't pick yeah. up on that detail. Yeah, so this is this is a major important aspect of Rand's invasion plan, and all of that is being prepared throughout this book, where he has like the misdirection of the army out on the plains of Moreto, and he sends Matt down, and then he changes Matt's course to Saladar, and all this stuff. Yeah. Rand is like really playing chess here, 
where he's moving his pieces around the board and hiding like his bishop in the back line who's just gonna you know go out and take down wreck samuel and ilian and uh and, and i like that because it's such an understated and and not necessarily overtly explained uh scene in this book so i never realized that yeah that's really cool but that was my last point about rand so uh i have one more thing to say about rand okay on, dude. how hard did you guys laugh when he told min that she wasn't a woman <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't laugh really. Even at like 13 years old, I was like, oh, dude, no, man, no, that's not, no. I've never had another reaction to it. I'm just like, ooh. It's like, <laughs> exactly. Foot cringing. Just stepped there. Foot insert It's, it's, it's mouth, amusing. Like. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely a little amusing, but I wouldn't say I laughed at it because I just kind of like cringed a little bit. I was like, ugh, ouch. Yeah. That, that just reminds me of, of exactly something I would have said at like <laughs> well a little younger than Rand's age for sure but I definitely would have said yeah. Cool. But I, yeah, I, wanna, I have nothing else on Rand I want to move on and talk about uh, just the Saladar women in general here um, oh okay Nynaeve obviously is, is important here but I also want to talk about Swan and Lyanna um, hmm. and, and how it shows how different they are uh, in their reactions to being healed um, you know where there's Lyanna is much more like reserved whereas Swan in, in her own way, like lashes out, you know, uh, like obviously they both have to deal with the, um, latent emotions that they didn't have to experience when their bonds were broken because yeah, they were still, yeah. um, but, but they handled those differently. And, and I think that's, you know, a, another good little character, uh, bit of character work on Robert Jordan's part showing how their personalities manifest in these major life moments for them and how Leanna is so like steady going forward. You know, she just, I think Leanna transitions much more smoothly um, from being stilled into being able to channel again than Swan does because Swan is so no stubborn, you know, yeah. and, and, and Swan has a hard time, adjusting to new things in her life whereas liana is very adaptable and we see her just like immediately boom you know like, you know and yeah. and going forward where she is like all right i'm gonna be a green this time and everybody's like wait what you know and <laughs> but it, it, it would never in a million years would you have expected swan to say yeah i'm gonna change my odd job like no that's not swan sanche she is what she is and uh and so of course she's gonna go back to the blue so yeah i think yeah. part of the issue with swan is that she's also dealing with this unofficial hierarchy of strength in the power now as well so even oh, yeah. though she is now healed she is quite weak and that's and because thus not, i mean not only is she not emerlin anymore but even just among a group of i said i she doesn't have much authority Whereas, yeah. on the other hand, Loghain is pretty close to his original strength. And I want to point out that that's because Loghain was healed by a member of the opposite sex. Oh, Loghain right. is at his original strength. And yes, that oh, was because he was... Are you serious? He's straight up at his original strength. Yeah, I yeah. thought he lost maybe just a little bit. No, is, that no. the, is that the official, like, is that why he healed fully? Is because it was the opposite yes. sex? Yeah, it's because a woman uh, healed his gentling. And if a man were to heal Swan and Lyanna's stilling... 
they would return to their original strength as far as I... Yes, I as we see, well, uh, Damer Flynn will heal some stilled eyes to die in a couple of books here, and they are back to full strength. What? Yeah. Damer Flynn? Yeah. I, I, he, we, we actually, we had a male heal uh, stilled women? Yeah. How did I, how did I miss that in this, that happened in the series? Holy crap, like, I know I Damer Flynn sand, saved Rand's life in book seven. I know he's a gifted healer. I had no idea he did the same. I think it's mentioned in Path of Daggers. I mean, we don't, like, see it happen on the page, but we hear about it where one of the Aes Sedai is, like, talking to Rand, and she says, oh, by the way, Damer Flynn healed the three sisters you stilled at Dumai's Wells, and they're as strong as they ever were. Oh my god. Yeah. That's news to me. Go yeah. Damer Flynn. So, so but, but to your point, Rob, yes, it, Loghain is back to full strength because he was healed by a woman, and yeah. Swan and Lyanna are so much diminished because they were healed by a woman. So hypothetical question, say they were stilled again, and then they were healed by Damer Flynn. Right, I knew, I knew you were going to ask that. Um, I, I'd have to, to dig it up again, but my, if my memory serves, which it usually does when it comes to this stuff, uh, Robert Jordan said, no, it would not work. Like, it would basically be like, um, if, if they were stilled again and then healed by a man, they would just be healed back to their stilled, post-stilled strength. Mm. Um, Damn, that sucks. And 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 there was some like discussion around like how your body like once you're scarred, your body won't like get rid of the scar if you cut open again like that sort of a thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and then on on that same subject, just as like a general uh thing, uh burning out cannot be healed, where where severing can. Oh, I hadn't even thought to ask that yeah uh, and i mean that's something obviously we'll, we'll probably talk about more when we get to the uh, martin janata stuff uh later on but it, yeah uh there there definitely have been some some statements from team jordan about that where like if if nynaeve went to satal anon and tried to heal her it wouldn't work mm. so okay and gamer flint could do it he could get it done no, because she's burned out. Oh, sorry, Satella Anand burned herself out? <laughs> yeah, oh, she was Martine Janata, the one who was studying the Tarangreal and, and had an... Oh, I didn't know they were the same person. I know who Satella Anand was. I didn't realize she was the same yeah. person as... Oh, oh Rob, you're killing me right now. <laughs> I know, dude. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, th this, is all, this is a lot of stuff for, like, down the road, uh, you know, later books, but... Yeah. Um, one random, one, another random technical question I had sure. is why was Swan still affected by, with like the latent emotional effects from the bond, even though she was stilled? Because I mean, doesn't that break do the bond at the point channel, of stilling? So, um, as I understand it, it's, it, it is like a, a one power effect, essentially, with the bond. Um, yes, and so, so, so when she was cut off from the one power, she was also cut off from the effect and the, the, uh, the results of the broken bond. But then once she was reconnected to the one power, all that stuff was just sitting there waiting to pour out. Yeah. When, when a bond is broken like that by the murder of the, of a warder or the murder of an Aes Sedai, it's not simply, you know, it's not, uh, 
just normal human grief, although I'm sure that has a huge part to play, it's literally a supernatural effect added from the one power. You're going to hurt, like, even more. And she just wasn't subjected to that because she was still in shock as she was still. Like, she hadn't really... I guess I'm I guess I'm wondering like how it sits around this whole time. Right? It's gotta be in this part of her brain that's kind of just locked away with her ability yeah. to channel, and then once that part is, you know, that, that pathway is healed, I don't know. I'm going into the Yeah, I mean <laughs> Yeah, we not to get into the We weeds. never got like a, a really solid answer on this from Robert Jordan. As far as I'm aware, there's nothing in his notes like specifically discussing it. But uh the as as Rob put it there is more or less how I understand it too, so Yep. Um So good. So we we are still on the uh, the Sally Dar women, yeah, right? You now that, now that we got the lore women. segment out of the way in the middle yeah. of our characters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I still have lots more to ask you. Actually I have like four questions Ooh, for you. Today. Okay. All right. Well we can uh, yeah, we can save that for the end. But but yeah, uh, let's talk about Nynaeve and Elaine here. Sweet. Because... Um, Obviously, Nynaeve, there's a there's a big deal going on, uh, and and uh, you know they they occupy their own special space in Saladar at this point where they're you know they're not quite like treated like accepted, but they're definitely not eyes to die, you know like like Theodrin, yeah, right? and and Feolain, yeah, um, yeah, and and so it's it's an opportunity for them to display their their prowess and and the experience they've gained during you know their time away from the tower and hunting the black odd job but of course they're still constrained so much and and for Nynaeve especially that's it's very difficult to handle because this is Nynaeve we're talking about yeah uh, you know even though she's doing things that none of these other eyes that I could even dream of doing she still has to knuckle under and and deal with how they think things should be done, you know. And of course, it yeah. it, it finally um, it takes this to to get the yellow Aja to respect Nynaeve and respect her unorthodox healing weaves, where they're like, "Why would you ever think of yeah. using fire?" I'll, I'll like, say, what? you know, respect exactly fire and earth. Everybody knows that fire and spirit, is just air, water, and spirit. Well, because right? she uses fire and spirit. Oh, I thought okay, yeah. The, the chapter's called... I thought it was Fire and fire Earth and, that kind of threw them off. The chapter's called Fire and Spirit, or Spirit ah, and Fire. No kidding. Let me let me just... Ah, okay. I don't remember which one's first, but it's, um, As far as Nynaeve goes... It is Fire and Spirit. Yeah, look yeah. it up. I'll, uh... Yeah, it's, just say, it's a chapter cool. 29, Fire I'll, and Spirit. Uh, my only point about... About Nynaeve is that I was, I was really excited that we got to see Nynaeve with an absolute win. Because... Seeing her struggle with her block for so long, it's been so such a bummer. And then she did it. She she bloody did it. She just healed Stilling. That that powerful moment with Swan and Liana that we just discussed, you know, that was just so damn wholesome. And I thought that was something that Nynaeve really deserved and really needed at this point because her uh, struggling with her block is really really uh, starting to take its toll. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, it really pisses me off when right afterwards. Like right after doing this legendary thing, immediately all the yellows are like, "Oh, we can totally improve on this." Like, right? You should have done yeah. this. You should have done that. Which confused the crap out of me. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. But then Nynaeve came to the realization that they are, for a large part, just doing things to keep her angry, so that she can just demonstrate it again and again and again. I think they were a little self-aware what they were doing at that point. They were just intentionally trying to irritate her. I'm not trying to excuse the Aes Sedai. They are ignorant. 
Definitely. Oh, Definitely. 100%. But I think some of that can be explained with them intentionally trying to piss her off so that, that she can continue performing this weave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, Nynaeve yeah. has a uh, little bit of a, like a nadir to her character arc in this segment of this book because it's when she is at her most like uh, experienced yet repressed, you know? Because pretty much everything after this point, uh, uh, Nynaeve's away from the institution of the White Tower, and you know mm. she kind of gets to be her her own badass self. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's tough to read about her for stretches here, and then she has this kind of crowning triumphant moment that helps mitigate that, and sets the stage for her to. You know, to then move on when Egwene is uh, uh, raised to Amerlin, and then subsequently Nynaeve is raised to Aes Sedai. So, yeah. Um, as far as Elaine goes, I wanted to say that it was kind of—I don't want to say it was amusing. That's kind of the wrong word, but it was definitely surreal. Like, like watching her learn supposedly that her mother is in the Fortress of the Light in Amador, and supposedly guest of Pedro Nile. <sighs> just kind of laughs it off. Yeah. I wrote down, ouch. Ouch. Yeah. And then uh, to, to wrap up Nynaeve and Elaine in particular, glad to see them finally get their excuse to leave Salidar. It's tough reading them there. It really is. Yeah. Egwene, you know, raises to the Amarlin, sends them after the Bowl of the Winds and Ebudar. Glad that they finally got their excuse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, uh, and we get to, uh, we get to see some more Matt in this segment. Uh, we do <laughs> some some great <laughs> moments. <laughs> some golden Matt. You know, I only have only Classic have one Matt. thing written down about Matt, but it was exactly what you're thinking. It is now the entire seat where he meets with Egwene as the Amarlin seat. I'm putting air quotes it's there. It's so for funny. Those who can't see. Oh my God, my sides. This is hands down one of the top three funniest scenes in the entire Wheel of Time series, in my opinion. In my opinion, it, yeah. it's just. Every word from beginning to end in that chapter, well, there's, like, yeah, there's, yeah, the chapter that follows, actually, after he learns that she truly is the Amarillo seat, and his response to that, oh, every word of that is just gold. I'm, I'm trying to find that, the quote, yeah, when, when he... Close your mouth, Matram Cawthon. Well, well, no, so Close when he shoves flies. Egwene, and he, he, like, takes the stole off her neck, and pulls her out of the chair, and shoves her away from the table, <laughs> and it's... He's like, what are you... Crazy. The, the silver fox head went dead cold against his chest. Egwene only looked puzzled, but Nynaeve's mouth was hanging open again, and Elaine's big blue eyes looked ready to pop out onto the floor. <laughs> and he's just yeah. like, uh, oh, oh, where's the, the line? Yeah, you'll need those cushions if the so-called Amarlin finds out about this little joke of yours. Yeah. And he goes, no, if you wanted to talk, you should have talked instead of lashing out with your bloody power. <laughs> Yeah, warm my bottom. Nynaeve mutters, whatever the heck she yeah, says. Yeah. She goes and kicks him right in the ass. <laughs> oh, right in the sciatic nerve. Oh, it's so and good. All the people that deserve that medallion, it's Matt. Oh, yeah, 100%. Just, if yeah, there, nobody yeah. needed that medallion more than Matt. Yeah. <laughs> the amount that he has to deal with the Wonder Girls and, and how quickly they all leap to just when he's being inconvenient, try to tie him up with the one power. Like, come on. <laughs> it was really hard for me not to make a dark joke there, so I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Herod Fell could have used that medallion a little more. <laughs> eh, 
See, (laughs) it would have made no difference for Harrenfell. Yeah, maybe not for him. It would have made no difference, but... Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Matt, Nynaeve, Elaine. Uh, Egwene, do we want to discuss Egwene? Is everything we have wrapped up on Matt? Uh, Yeah, I think... I think... I have enough for Matt for now. Um, I have one more point on Matt, but that's going to be another lore bit. Um, okay. But it, with Egwene, I'll, I'll come out and say it. She's she's pretty good in this segment, I think. Holy sh... Stop the presses, ladies and gentlemen. Play that sound bit back. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I still have some issues with how she plays fast and loose with Gieto. Um, but... It, but to her credit, she does fess up to the wise ones before she leaves. Uh, that that is to her credit. Whether yes. whether that whole sequence of breaking the rules and how Egwene treats that, the mentality she takes going forward based on that experience, all that aside, because that like pretty much all that is not the spirit of Gieto. In that moment when she says, "Yes, I have toe." That that is like a an impressive character moment for Egwene. Um, it definitely and, is, and especially immediately preceding her elevation to the Amarlin seat, hmm. and we get to see, you know, we get to see two sides of Egwene being afraid. Basically, in these two scenes, we have one where where she's afraid and nervous, of course, you know, being honest with the wise ones, and. And then we see her afraid in Saladar, having no clue what's happening, thinking that she's like about to get stilled or something like that. And and then it's slowly dawning on her like, oh, my gosh, they're wait, what they're going to do, what, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and then adapting quickly enough. And of course, this is this is one of Egwene's virtues is is like her ability to adapt to a new situation sort of like Leanna, you know, I've, I've talked about Egwene in the past as being sort of a social chameleon, where when she enters a new situation, she quickly identifies what can help me and what can I, you know, not pay attention to in this new situation. And so within 24 hours, you know, not even within like 10 hours of being raised to the Emerald seat, Egwene has already started identifying what she needs to do to best come out on top in this new figurehead Amerlin role. So I I I like the the sequence where she's raised to the Amerlin seat. Uh, it's one of the reasons I mean like this this whole middle segment of the book is so much fun because there are so many kind of crowning moments for characters in this sequence. And as much as I don't like some of the things Egwene does and and her attitudes at certain points in the series, this is a, a a really big character moment for her and yeah. the way not only what happens to her this uh, essentially a gift even though it wasn't intended as a gift that she is given but how she reacts to it and she, how she handles it so yeah jared are you going and i mean i'd say certainly within a day of being there she's already politically maneuvering around lelaine and ramonda mm-hmm. she's she's manipulating shiriam a little bit yeah, a little playing with fire, but I can respect it. <laughs> yeah, I never really understood their logic of choosing her. Why not? She she was the Dragon Reborn's former betrothed. Like, so we hear some uh, little t- 
tidbits of we like, do. when we Nynaeve do, yeah. is like eavesdropping and stuff. Egwene's strength in the power is a big deal. Uh, the fact that she was away from the tower and away from Saladar for all this time, they see her as like a more neutral option. And of course, her age, she's much younger. She doesn't have the strings attached, the political strings attached that Elaine would. And she's younger and less stubborn, well, sort of less stubborn than Nynaeve. And, and so, and of course she has the tie to Rand. So there, there are a lot of attractive options there for, of course it all backfires because they failed to like take into account her actual character, uh, the kind yeah. of person that Egwene I guess, is. I, I guess I struggled to understand most the rest of the Aes Sedai there respecting that decision. Well, they don't really have to. It's as the, the hall raised her. The hall so. of the tower is the one who makes a decision, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, little, and then once sorry, she's well, so once she's officially Aes Sedai by virtue of being the Amarlin seat she's immediately at the top of the hierarchy because she's the strongest in the one power is she though? I mean Nynaeve is stronger than her yeah but Nynaeve's not an Aes Sedai oh as far time? as the ranks of yeah. the Aes Sedai go yeah. okay gotcha and, gotcha. and like and while they allow Egwene this role of Aes Sedai by technicality there's a lot more resistance to Elaine and Nynaeve being raised, you know, okay. without the testing. So, actually, hold on. I just thought of another question. Wouldn't uh, Elaine make more sense, like, if it came down no, to a struggle? Because they, with they the were afraid of the that she would bring Andor into the fold? They were afraid of that political connection. Yeah. Uh, they, like, there could have been all kinds of political ramifications if an Aes Sedai, who is the daughter heir of Andor is Does just Tar-Valen like that would have been seen an state. Yeah, yeah like that would have been seen when, like, by a, a lot of rulers and, and nobles as like a, a transparent power play by Tarvalon to attach themselves permanently to like establish a hierarchy in one of if not the most powerful nation in Randland. Um I and I yeah. especially with Saladar where they were already um kind of aware of a potential illegitimacy to what they were doing, um, especially with things we find out later in the series, uh, they they would have been smacked down pretty hard if they had tried to do that with Elaine. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so to, to get my point, uh, just my, my brief thoughts of Egwene out of the way here, I will say I was a little disappointed that her training with the Wise Ones is finally coming to an end because this also marks the last of what I'm referring to as the palatable... Egwene from here on out. Um, <laughs> yeah. But as you were saying, Drew, her like her she had a few shining moments in this part of the series, in this part of the book in particular. Her chapter, Courage to Strengthen, was yeah. superb. Absolutely phenomenal. Her decision to deal with her toe and to enlist the aid of the wise ones to help her beat it, the way she accepted punishment, she laid down for more. I mean, she was embraced as nearly an equal, like such a huge huge moment for her and there are big things coming for her not always going to be things of course that i like but big things nonetheless Mm -hmm. and of course i went on to say speaking of big things being raised to the armorland seat i mean in terms of holy crap moments in the entire series oh that's got to be on the top five of anybody's list like it just has to be right yeah talk about robert jordan's ability to to build tension in a scene where he does such a good job of burying you in Egwene's point of view that 
you know, to her, of course, it would never occur that she yeah. might be being raised to the Amerlin seat, you know? And so to us as well, even though he's seeded these little hints with naive, like eavesdropping and things like that, it never occurs to us the first time reading through that this is what's going to happen. You're like, oh, like what, what is, you know, why is she being called back? And then, and then she has this Well, you panic assume and, it's because yeah. they found out that she's been masquerading yeah. as an Aes Sedai, right? And, and like you're kind of terrified for her at that point. And then she gets like whipped into the hall and suddenly you're like, wait a second. Yeah. What? You're, you're, ex you're <laughs> expecting the disapproval, not just the disapproval, but the condemnation of Aes Sedai for trying to pass herself off as amongst their ranks. She's ready to be stripped in the, in the town square and flogged. And instead she's told, you are now the most powerful woman on the earth. Yeah. Or at least one of the two, but they don't know that the uh, Empress is pretty powerful, the, too. The, um... You know, I... Maybe we should have talked about this in the style discussion, but it didn't even occur to me until now. Um, sure, go ahead, dude. Uh, the place this takes in the book, right? So, so this is a... In my paperback copy, it's like a thousand and nine pages or something like that, and... In the Hall of the Sitters, it starts on page 661, almost exactly two-thirds of the way through the book. Two-thirds of the way through most books is, the is, start. is, is when the shit goes down. Like, when your, your characters have their legs cut out from underneath them. When it seems like everything's going well, and then something horrible happens in a twist. And so he sets this up as... You know, like, whether consciously or subconsciously as a reader, you're expecting something to go wrong here. And then, in a reverse twist, something goes brilliantly right for Egwene. Yeah. You know? That was a really, really cool that. authorial move. That's really, really cool. And how it was, that it lined up that close to the exact two-thirds point of the book. Yeah, it, it is It is always interesting to to dig into books and the structures of them and, and where certain plot beats tend to happen, you know, and then compare and contrast and, and look at, all right, this is, this is where we would expect something like X to happen. But in this book, something like Y happens instead, you know, and, and that's what we're dealing with here. So I think that's really yeah. cool. That's but. the end of my Egwene points. Actually, I think that's yeah. That's the end of all of my character points to discuss for today. Jared, do you have anything more to add about Egwene? Nope. Okay. So. Uh, okay. Well, that, I I think that'll be enough for me on on Egwene too. Then, uh, Rob, you said that was the end of all of your character. Yes. Yeah, oh. Okay. I still have. A couple of miscellaneous impressions and some questions I want to throw at you. Okay. Uh, uh, fire away. Oh, okay. Um, so, should I ask the questions first or just get my little miscellaneous moments? I'll, I'll do that first. Uh, there's a, a, a stupid general question I have. This is not about Wheel of Time lore at all. But oh. do hawkers ever do anything besides cry their wares? <laughs> this, like, this, this, this is a thought that I've had before and I don't think I've actually voiced it up until this point at least not on the podcast but I am so sick and bloody tired of hearing that line the hawkers cried their wares it happens in every single 
fantasy book by every single author. I'm done with those like five words. I mean, sequentially, I'm done with it. To be fair, that is what a hawker is. Like, I I know, but like, <laughs> cry their wares. There's so many different ways to say what they do, and those three words, I'm just so over it. It's yeah. like, a, ah, thank goodness. Yeah, that's. I, don't know. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> right. I mean, but, this is the kind of stuff I'm writing down when I'm when I'm listening to the audiobook. I mean, I'm at work. I just have miscellaneous <laughs> impressions I want to get out of the way. Uh, nice. You're okay. Chapter seventeen. We got a Nail joke that I love. It was Urian who made the joke, and Rand is talking to him and Davram Bashir, and he says to the two, he goes, "If you insist, two of you can hang out to protect me from mice. I don't think anything larger will jump out at me here." And then Urian grins, and he nods, and he gestures about head high to a Kyrienne, and he mutters, well, The mice can be big here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, that one killed me. I don't remember ever picking up on that one before. It must have gone clear over my head at least 20 <laughs> to 50 times before I got it this time around. What a gem. I just, I love this this style of Aiel humor. Yeah. And at first, honestly, at first I just went and reread it, you know, so I could write down the exact quote. And I was a little disappointed just now to find that he was talking... About the Kyrianen, because I thought he literally gestured to about head high on Bashir, who was standing right beside him, and said, <laughs> the mice can be big here. I thought that's what he originally did. That's why it killed me so much. Oh. Ah, it was good. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I do have one more thing that I think we need to discuss. It's not necessarily a character thing, but just a general plot and an important moment. And that is okay. the founding of the Black Tower. Yeah. I mean... I brought this up at the end of the last episode? No, at the end of Fires of Heaven Part 3. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, when the, the amnesty was announced. He announced yeah. his amnesty. I was like, oh, big moment for the series. But here we find out not only, you know, we've we've already seen the farm get started. We've seen some guys getting trained and all of that. But when we have this moment of organization and on top of that, specifically a, um, like, a mission statement to, to use some, like, marketing lingo, um, <laughs> it's... It's uh, it, it goes to show where Rand's priorities are, of course, and how he views his role as the Dragon Reborn, where he's not just focused on fighting the Dark One, which is what he could be. A, a more selfish Dragon Reborn might be totally fixated on this whole, like, my blood on the rocks of Shale Ghoul aspect of it. But Rand is saying, no, we need to make use of our resources to protect all of humanity and yeah. and to guard and and he br brings in you know the word ashaman this this old tongue guardian that has connotations of like righteous protection and the ideal yeah, yeah. and and then of course taim has this like obvious revulsion when rand calls him the first ashaman because whether, you know, he's Demandred or just Mazram Taim, uh, he is still a servant of the Shadow. And he's being lauded as exactly the opposite of what he's so, trying to do. Okay, so that's, I guess that's actually, I just got a fifth question now. I just added one there, and this is the perfect point to ask it, I think, Drew, before you continue. So he's already a servant of the Shadow at this point. When precisely oh, did that yeah. happen? Um, it, it was after he was, uh, freed from the Aes Sedai. So in the... So before he even approached Rand in... Yes, the in the, the retcon. Book. In the retcon version. Because obviously okay. in the version of this book that we're reading right now, when Robert Jordan yeah. wrote that, this was Demandred. 
yeah. but he changed his mind and made him just Taim. Um, uh, but in that retcon version, Demandred freed him from the Red Aja that who captured him in Saldea and basically brought him this offer of like join the shadow so th yeah so that would have happened before even yes he, uh, pro he accepted yeah. rain's amnesty and, and then and then the shadow gave him the seal to bring to rand as like a token of goodwill trust. yeah gotcha. um okay. and then yeah and and of course from the get-go we see taim twisting uh like the the theme the the goal of the ashaman to be not this ideal of, of guardians and protectors of humanity. To be just mindless weapons instead. Mm. And Rand says, make me weapons. But yeah. you can do that without being like, <laughs> you know? Without being like Taim. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I mean, this uh. is just such a, a major point. And, and uh, there's also, like, you got to bring it up. The cool factors here, man. Like... Oh my goodness! How can you deny that? The soldiers so and the dedicated and the Ashaman and the Black Tower the to balance the White yeah. Tower and the yeah the pins and it's although so I do great. have to say, Rand's speech there did anybody else like kind of cringe a little bit when nobody was like making any noise? It was just crickets when he was making these <laughs> pronouncements. Uh, I didn't I didn't necessarily cringe at that, but I uh, I was like a little oh that sucks. I did feel a little like. Because it was in front of such a small crowd, too. Yeah, it like, was there's a only, small crowd. There's only, like, what, like... A, 30 dudes there Yeah, or a couple like that? dozen, like... Yeah. And, uh... But it, it always struck me as something that, like, Rand's speech there was not necessarily going to have the impact on the men standing there, but it would be the kind of thing that would be repeated yeah. down the line, and that would grow in the telling, so to speak... And I always, at these moments, like to think ahead to the fourth age or the fifth age, when they when they have these legends about these moments, they could have gone back to see this moment, the Dragon Reborn founding the Black Tower, and it's just a bunch of dudes standing around in the field, yeah, like, but Rand standing on the back of the wagon, <laughs> you know, that's just really cool. I think. But because memory turns to legend and legend turns to myth, by the time we get to those Fades stories to being told in the in in the fifth age or whatever, you know. Instead of 25 scruffy farmers, you know, who just happen to be able to channel, standing yeah. in a field, it's like That's the dragon I mean. reborn, yeah, like on a podium of marble and the black That's tower I mean. rising How behind cool it would have yeah. been for somebody from those future ages to come back and see this moment. And it's just a bunch of yeah, guys yeah. standing in a field with chickens <laughs> scratching around their ankles and a bunch of dust in the air and people are sweating. And you nobody know, cheering. I like to think like this is how legends are born. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I love that idea. So, uh, let's, so uh, to continue on with my miscellaneous before I get into my questions, well, I got four questions for you, Drew. I just want to get my be next three out of the way real quick. Okay. Um, we got what's what, some of the most meta that Jordan ever got with this series with the man Herod Fell. We just briefly discussed him. What a guy! Everything about this portly little philosopher is interesting as hell, and I am bummed that we. Yeah. Didn't get more of him after this book. I'm trying to tiptoe around that particular spoiler. Well, we've already, we've already like. No, no, we said that. The, we said that. that the, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. Because what we said was that the fox and medallion wouldn't have helped him. 
That's yeah, all we said. Also Who knows? Maybe he was going like, to use everything it. from a crown of swords through a memory of light. That's true. I did just. I, I was just spoiling from Sanderson Skyward just now, but I did proceed that one with the spoiler. Oh man! A warning. Um. Second, how cool and surprising was it to see how the wise ones received Barrelane? Like that was heartwarming. Like that yes. was downright awesome. And how jealous Egwene was. Mm, the chef's kiss. So del- delicious. I loved it. I don't know. It's hard to like. I've kind of liked Barrelane. I do too. I do like Barrelane the whole time. <laughs> and I'm trying to find a reason to make say why I like Barrelane without sounding like oh he's just likes the hottest girl in the world. She is a capable woman. That's she definitely can not fight. Why. She is a she is a capable leader. She like what I loved how that she taught Fayula lesson in the first part of the the first part of the Shadow Rising. Oh yeah, they're God, little so much scuffle to in the hallway Fahil back then. Well, like so- Barrelane has done nothing but show herself to be a resourceful competent, intelligent, and formidable woman. Yes. I mean, she has to with main and tier. Yes, yes she has to. But I, I will add this. While I do come down on the side of I like Barrelane, she's got some pretty misguided moral oh, compass going on. Like, I will not argue that. She is not without her flaws. Uh, <laughs> nope, she is not. But, but, but you can see in how the wise ones treat her what kind of yes, yeah. person she is. Yeah, they, is. they recognize her capability. Yeah. So. Yeah. And my last uh, miscellaneous thought, just something I wanted to note: the arrival of Halima. Yes. Yep. Ugh. Ugh, gross. That's all. That's all. I need, that's all I needed to say about that. It's just a random noise. So. All right. So uh, my questions. Well, well uh, before you get to that, Jared, do you have any yep. other like miscellaneous points you want to talk about? Nope. Okay. Okay. Now, deep penetrative lore with Drew. Starts. You now. know it. I'm. I'm sorry. <laughs> what was that? Oh, you didn't listen to our great hunt with Rob Winchell. <laughs> oh, Jared, missing out. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So the wise ones supposedly have a dream about Rand, and the Bowl of Winds is clearly a subject. But my question is, who is this? Well, this person who was referred to as the one who is no longer, who is apparently the key to finding the bowl. Satal Anon. She is the one who is no longer. Yeah, she used to be an Aes Sedai. She is no okay, longer an so Aes Sedai. She used to be all of the tower. That's, she's, that's the context. And talking she's about the there. one who gives. I was talking like somebody undead. I was like, no, what the no. hell is this? It's Satal okay. Anon because Satal Anon is the one who sends Nynaeve and Elaine to the kin, and the kin are the one who lead them, the ones who lead them to the bowl. That's cool. How like even the wise ones themselves in their dreaming, they're still seeing Satal Anon. That's mm-hmm. cool. That's I like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, number two, this is a listener question from our Facebook page a couple of weeks back um, that I I thought it would be an, uh, an appropriate question to add for this episode in particular. Yeah. But I went back today and tried to find this listener uh, to try to give him credit, try to find the question. And for the life of me, I read through every thread on every comment leading back to our Eye of the World <laughs> releases, and I couldn't find the question or the poster anywhere. So, my apologies, listener. <laughs> if you can find me in that post and tag me in it, I will give you another shout out, I swear. But if memory serves, the question was something along the lines of, do we think Pod and Fane brushed Elida and or Pedro Nile with the ruby-hilted dagger like so as to make them more susceptible to his influence? Or is Fane's mere presence enough to corrupt someone on its own? I think that was the question. So, I mean, there's there's a very easy answer to the first part of that, and that is no and no, because Fane didn't have sure? the dagger. Fane- oh! 
Thane did not have the dagger when You're he right. was in the Fortress of the Light. <laughs> and right. he stole the dagger out of the tower basement and immediately fled Tarvalon. He did not hang around to, uh, you know. But that said, yes, his presence is corrupting in and of itself. The more he can talk to you and, like, worm into your mind with his arguments and his persuasions, the more corrupt you get. And, so here's, uh, and, and we I, see that. I mean, we see the results of that in in Tarvalon later on down the line when Elida is like, like she's going insane. Like she's, she's ordering people to not clean up the trash in the streets. Like, you know, we see Elida and she was always an ambitious forthright woman, but she was not insane. She was not mad the way she is by the end of the series. And that is in huge part due to Fane's influence on her. So I think part of the the uh, misinterpretation here was the fact that word for word the text says from uh, Pod and Fane's point of view in chapter twenty eight it says unlikely Nile would uh, would ever have supported oh yeah sorry I'm gonna start that again unlikely Nile would ever have supported Althora any more than Elida would have but it was best not to take too much for granted with Rand bloody Althor well he had brushed them both with what he carried from Aradhal. They might possibly trust their own mothers, but never Althor now. Oh, now, yeah. Well, that's just the power of... The power. Yeah. His influence, right. Yeah. And, uh, it's to, more to, to, to expound upon that, I wanted to say, anybody who spends enough time in Fane's presence will become corrupted. The essence of Mashadar, to the best of my knowledge, is it kind of works like ionizing radiation. The dagger is a pure, potent source. But Fane has handled it for so long that he himself has become, for lack of a better term, irradiated. Uh, um, well, I think it's, it's the other way around, actually. Because Fane is Mordeth now. And Mordeth was the source of this power. Okay. And everything in Shadar Logoth... So the source Logoth, has left Aradhal now. That's why ev- it's such a big... Yeah, everything deal. in Shadar Logoth was there for so long that it became irradiated, so to speak. Okay. And okay, then, yeah. so the dagger, when it goes out you know, out into the world. I mean, anything you took out of Shadar Logoth and anything in Shadar Logoth. Like, if you got nicked by the dagger in Shadar Logoth, you're still screwed. plot hole that I had a tiny bit of issue with. <laughs> I mean, how does nobody ever remove even so much as a pebble from this lost city? I mean, this... No, I don't know. Hey, but since we're on the topic, though, <laughs> irradiation. Okay. Or I should say uh, of radiation or irradiated. Uh, to use the air quotes there. I do want to say that I found it very interesting during the scene from book five, I'm going back a book now, where Fane steals the dagger back from the tower. Mm-hmm. And we noted that the box he retrieved it from was lined with two inches of solid lead. Yep. First off, how heavy is this fucking box? Yeah. <laughs> do you have any godly idea how heavy a dagger-sized box would be with two inches Oh, of yeah. steel oh, on yeah. the walls of that box? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a little nitpick. But like, what I'm focusing on is the lead. Apparently, mm-hmm. I said I have reason to believe that lead shields from the effect of Mashadar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of lends another point towards the radiation theory. Yes. Uh, and I think that or was probably radiation. a carryover from the Age of Legends, like a, a bit of apocryphal lore where sure. when, okay, gotcha. when uh, radiation and like nuclear power was probably much more common in the Age of Legends yeah. uh, in certain ways. I'm sure people were studying things and dealing the age with of it. Legends, probably yeah. in the first age, actually. And, and so now at any point when the Aes Sedai interact with an object of supreme dangerous power, they're going to go lock it behind lead. Yeah. So. With corruptive power, yeah, for sure. 
Okay, so my, my next question then, my third question out of four is, at one point, Rand is ending his meeting with the tower, Aes Sedai, and uh, as, as, as they're taking off, he addresses a question to Galena, of all people, specifically Galena, and he asks her about Alviarin. And then he explains to mm -hmm. Egwene afterwards that she must be one of Alviarin's friends. He specifically uses the word friends. So are we, do you think we're actually starting to see like Rand's ability to discern dark friends even so early as this? So, uh, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that going on here, but I, I do think, you know, this is a, a natural thing that like Rand would have asked about, you know, and because it, it's, he already had his interest in Alviarin because of the letter, uh, right? You know, and Just then of to... course he's going to ask, you know, about her because Rand is dumb. And, but in, uh... in the qu in the letter, he she makes it pretty clear that I don't want like she's doing this kind of like on the down low like why would he just up and do that like i don't know it seemed kind of random to me i don't know maybe it's, it's a lesson in the in the game of houses that moraine managed to impart or something like that but i don't know it just it seemed really really odd that galena of all people he would ask this question about alviarin of all people and he would specifically use the word friends of all words i just i don't know it seemed a little no i mean i think it makes sense too much uh, of a for me you know, he, that he would ask the tower embassy about LBR in, in the tower, especially when she said, like, I will be your friend, essentially. But what it really comes down to here, as, especially as far as the Black Eye Jack connection goes, is it's it's Tavirin, you know. It, yeah. Tavirin. It's a, a little eddy in the pattern that is... The pattern uh, trying to guide putting, him. Yeah, yeah. To show him, hey, look at this right in front of your eyes. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. My, my last question. Um, we ha it's, it's in a scene from uh, Fane's point of view. We learned that he had uh, he had learned himself to tell dark friends by sight, even one who had, and I quote, just thought about swearing to the shadow, as if seeing a sooty mark on their forehead. Now, I admit, I could be jumping the gun. I fully get that. But does he mean this, like, figuratively, as if it's just as obvious to him as a smudge on a clear expanse of skin, or is he actually seeing a dark mark of some sort and I, I get that it's an odd question i know that but it does make me think back to this moment at the end of book two the great hunt where min is trying to coax like a comatose rand back to life and lanfear enters the room and she leans down and she draws what appears to be a mark i think it was uh, a dragon's fang on his forehead and then he finally starts to stir a little bit in his coma slash sleep like am i just like reaching here is there do you think there's anything to be discussed so yes uh yes and no um yes and no okay so yes there there is a mark that is put on some dark friends foreheads uh alviarin gets it in crosswords of twilight shida haran like presses his oh. thumb to her forehead yeah oh yeah um, no, crosses of twilight that explains why i didn't remember you know okay got it got you got it yeah, and and so there there is definitely a mark that is given to some people. That said, I don't think Lanfear was giving Rand that mark. I don't think she has the authority or the capability from the Dark One to do so. Um, and no, and point, by yeah. extension, I don't think Fane is talking about fang. that. Yeah, it was a Dragon's Fang. Uh, but I don't think Fane is seeing that mark either, because obviously not all Dark Friends have this mark. Uh, you know, Alviarn was the head of the Black Gaja for, you know how long and and she only just now got it yeah um point, so yeah. i think it is a uh, a much more uh, metaphorical thing that 
Fane just has this sense about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the end of my questions. Actually, that's, okay. that rounds up everything that I actually wrote down to discuss for this episode of Lord of Chaos. Okay. Uh, Jared, do you have any uh, final thoughts? Nope, nothing for me. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to say, let's uh, <laughs> look forward to part three here, because we're going to get into some really, oh really fun stuff. At the end of the Lord of Chaos to discuss. Boys, I've been waiting to discuss that that ending of that book since we started the Wheel of Time, since we started this podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it mm-hmm. so much. So, shall we start the final draft? Absolutely. Rob, kick us off. Okay, so I was in the corner store. Uh, corner store? No, we don't have beer in corner stores over here. In the suit, in the grocery <laughs> store, and I was looking through beers, and I was thinking, and I was obviously trying to choose something thematically appropriate, and I found one that made me stop and go, huh, of course, it's kind of obvious. Why, why, why wouldn't I? And I, this here is my homage to um, Mervin, I think his name was, at the school in Kyrian with his little contraption of brass and heat and whistles and burns on all over his body this here is a rather standard beer it's a premium pale ale premium again in air quotes this here is <laughs> steam whistle nice nice right i thought i saw where, that where, one sorry go ahead uh, where is that one from oh i don't know this is steam whistle you guys like that's not like one of the big 10 down there or the big 20 at least like this is like very very standard stuff up here no, no. I've no? never heard of that beer before. Really? Oh. Steam Whistle Brewing. Brewing? Brewing. At the Roundhouse. Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Damn, I didn't oh, realize okay. this was actually a uh, somewhat local thing. I thought Steam Whistle was just like a... Because it's, it's everywhere down here. And, of course, you know, nice. to, to, to add to that, I added another uh, Collective Arts Brewing from... I think I had this one on a previous episode. This one's called Stranger Than Fiction. This is a porter. And my god the the chocolate the, the nuttiness of it the roasted flavor and it was ah it was great i was really really pleasantly surprised again of course that you actually drew i forgot to show you this earlier look at the cover of this thing jared take a look at this whoa right that is that unique is that's slightly <laughs> disturbing right and i'm just going to describe wow. what it is really quickly for those who are listening it is a giant fat bald man with hair all over his shoulders and pectorals it's just a really terrible disturbing painting but hey it's a delicious beer it's a good porter nice roasty flavors in it i'm gonna be drinking that one again in the future that one's from collective arts and of course the first one was from steam whistle steam whistle steam whistle that's a that's a great tie-in it's a great thematically appropriate thank you thank you i thought so (laughs) uh jared what do you got for us I'm continuing my tradition of a not thematically appropriate beer. It's a good tradition. <laughs> uh, this is a Peach Golden Ale from Four Peaks Brewing. So mm. they're one of Ooh. the big main breweries here in the Arizona area. Uh, it's pretty good. It's not nice. very fall-like, but it's Arizona, so... I'm sure it's tasty as hell, too. It's Peach very Golden tasty. Sounds... Yeah, well, my... Yeah. my <laughs> journey to find a good pumpkin ale kind of crashed and burned i didn't want to do it again to myself this week <laughs> yeah yeah oh so drew well my man brah, yeah what do you got up, this dude. time i'm also so today i brought on what i believe is the strongest beer i have yet brought onto the podcast oh 
this oh, is no. an imperial stout aged in rye barrels, rye whiskey barrels, from Drake's rye. Brewing Company in uh, California, in San Leandro, California. This is 17.5%. Damn! And <laughs> How are you oh still coherent God. through How an entire episode? Speaking full sentences at the moment. Well, because <laughs> I still have this much left of this oh, thing. okay. Uh, haven't exactly been drinking <laughs> this fast. God, uh, that's got it. You've already had more alcohol than I've had between my two tall boys combined. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, it's, it is a hefty, hefty beer. It is super tasty, though. I mean, it is a booze bomb. Like, you you take a whiff of this thing, and it's just rye whiskey in your face. Mm. But, yeah, when, once you put it in your mouth, though, it's rich chocolate, nice and roasty, a little bitter, and it has this kind of, like, red wine, like, tannic sort of finish, a little bit of oak. Mm. It's super tasty. This is a very, very good Interesting. beer. Interesting. 17.5%. I got to put that one down on the list for when I visit. First yeah. night down there, we're drinking this one, dude. And uh, the name of it, though, is my ode to all those Sidene users out there and to the founding of the Black Tower. It is called The Void. Oh, oh man. I'm so disappointed you didn't save that one for a Stormlight book. What the hell? We'll see. I, I see that. We'll I see the connection. I like it. Tame in the boys. Yeah. Taim. Tame. Uh oh. Taim. Said. I just not, said not, tame. Not tame. No. Never no. Tame. Not that one. Big sin. <laughs> that one. Whoops. Mazum Taim in the boys. Yeah. I like it. Nicely done, man. Yeah. So. uh Just. Whew. I mean, if you ever get your hands on this beer, I don't recommend drinking it all yourself. That sounds like it's a hangover a in a bottle, dude. Uh, it's a small bottle, and even then, like you, you, you want to split this thing <laughs> with somebody else. But Damn. I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Yeah, it does. And uh, so this has been episode forty-three mm-hmm. of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we'll be diving right into the last section of Lord of Chaos. We're gonna be bringing you that hot Doom Eyes Wells content. Oh. <laughs> and, yes, uh, hot yes. Doom Wells. And if you want to get access to that ASAP, you should check out our Patreon, where you can get early access to our episodes. As uh, you know, as Rob said, we just had a new uh, new supporter on there. Joseph this, McFarland. Uh, yeah. Give him another shout uh, out. Thank you, Joseph. And we got we got lots of fun content. Um, we got exclusive short episodes. We got a monthly newsletter. You can uh, request a book for us to read and cover on a future episode. Yep. So definitely check us out there. And as always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Sup? And our special guest, Jared Livingston. Yo! You mean Starship Captain Jared Livingston. That's correct. (laughs) So thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. See you guys.